the goal has been to change this industry. And I know a few people have said to me, why don't you stop saying Africa and African design and black design and just do design? But everybody else was doing that. And I said, we're missing and the goal is for me to fix it. And most of my friends thought it was an unattainable goal. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to furniture designer and maker Jomo Tariku. Jomo is an Ethiopian-American artist and industrial designer who's defining a new design language of modern African-themed furniture. His work has been acquired by several museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Baltimore Museum of Art, among others. He was recently awarded the 2022 Makers Award from the Black Artist and Designers Guild. And have you seen Wakanda Forever? If so, you've seen his work, because 12 of his pieces were featured in Hannah Beekler's production design of the movie. And soon, you'll be able to see him on an episode of the Netflix TV series Made by Design. As you'll hear, he has racked up some stories getting to this point. He has an indomitable spirit and a contagiously bright outlook. Here's Jomo. My name is uh, Jomo Tariku. I live in Springfield, Virginia in the United States. My background is industrial design, and I I have been focusing specifically on creating African-themed furniture for the last uh, 30 years. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. 
See you there. Thirty years. That's a nice long trajectory. I can't wait to get into that. But before we get into your professional career, you know, I love to learn the person's whole story. Can we start with your childhood? My dad was a civil servant, worked at the Ethiopian embassy in Nairobi, Kenya. And myself and my younger brother that I'm very close with, uh, a year and uh, two months apart, both of us were born in Kenya. And my two older brothers were born in Ethiopia. What was your childhood like? Did you grow up in Kenya or did you grow up in Ethiopia? Grew up in Ethiopia when I had turned four and probably four and a half, we went back to Ethiopia. So I barely remember my Kenyan childhood, obviously, at, at four. But I had the opportunity to go back many times after that. I went to both elementary and what is called middle school in the U.S. plus secondary school. In Ethiopia, graduated from high school, went to um, a Catholic school called St. Joseph, graduated there and came to the U.S. to uh, pursue my higher degrees. What kind of family dynamic would you say you had? Were your parents very driven and were they encouraging you to excel academically? My father was a refugee when Ethiopia was in invaded during Second World War or the pre-dawn of it by Italy for the second time. So he ended up going into a refugee camp in Kenya. Him going back as a civil servant was his second time in Kenya. Uh, his first time as a refugee in, in the refugee camp is where he learned to read and write for the first time. So the importance of education was extremely important to him, uh, my mom, and it was drilled down into us. The, the great thing about both my parents and I, I do hear this story from a lot of immigrants uh, in the U.S. Uh, when kids start gravitating towards the arts, usually get lectured. It's like, I didn't sacrifice all this for you to study art or to waste it. In my family, I've, I don't think I've ever heard that. So the only requirement is do well in school. <laughs> so as long as you did well in school, them seeing me drawing or sketching was not as bothersome. Uh, probably back then they didn't think I would pursue it as a study. Maybe that's why. I really believe partially is because my dad also had affinity of collecting artistic things that he has bought from markets whenever, wherever he traveled. So our house was full of very eclectic objects, uh, mostly from Africa, but not specifically locked into that. And I'm, I'm not surprised when I discovered industrial design in the U.S. and studied it, I never had a pushback from my parents saying, what are you studying? Uh, one could be because I think there was a misunderstanding what industrial design was. <laughs> because I remember when my dad came from my graduation and speaking to a relative over the phone, you know, saying, hey, I'm, I'm in the U.S. visiting. And I'm assuming the relative is asking, hey, how come you're here? And I'm here for the graduation of my uh, two sons. Again, me and my younger brother graduated the same year, we went to high school, the same grades. And he said, you know, one studied business administration and talking about me, he said, my son studied engineering. And I'm looking at him saying, I didn't study engineering. I didn't know. <laughs> so it was kind of funny that they didn't have the, you know, at least my dad didn't have the full understanding of that I studied industrial design is something I also 
discovered when I came to the U.S. I've never heard of industrial design. You know what? Even Americans haven't heard of industrial design. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's ridiculous to me. Um, so many people that I've spoken to, first of all, yes, I can confirm the immigrants that I've spoken to have all, <laughs> all confirmed your story. <laughs> yeah. But then also so many of the designers that studied industrial design that I've spoken to just stumbled upon it. They didn't even know it was something you could pursue until they stumbled upon it. So I'm actually really curious about the lead up to you coming to the U.S. to study industrial design. Like, what were you doing as an adolescent that carved the path to the, making this decision? And here, here again, my dad, unbeknownst to him or either me, uh, I think, played a major role because um, while transitioning from 8th to ninth grade summer break and 10th to 11th grade summer break, he put both me and my younger brother into what would be considered in the U.S. an apprenticeship program. There was a very small wood shop that was punching above b above its belt for the size of the shop right in our neighborhood. And he knew the parents of the owner. So he took us over, uh, one reason being, hey, this will keep you out of trouble during summer break. But for both me and my brother was uh, something to do during those breaks because my dad was extremely strict. I don't know how to describe it in the U.S., but we couldn't leave our compound. You know, and you had a villa, you have a compound, it's gated. So trouble is outside the gate was his approach. So this was like freedom for us. It was something to do, but it ended up being a great experience looking back. I think that played a role. Me out of boredom during summer break, sketching things around the house, specifically objects and furniture pieces, played a role. And all of this, I think, added up to me going to industrial design. Now, I did say earlier I was introduced to it once I came to the U.S. I did not know, and I didn't come to the U.S. to study industrial design. I was in small Christian college where one of the professors was hinting, if you're painting as an elective and she kept on saying, if you're good at painting like this, why aren't you pursuing it full time? So that led to me heading out to University of Kansas with my older brother, trying to another summer break thing after a year of study, trying computer science first and not doing very well at it. We went to University of Kansas, hoping to talk to maybe five or six professors in the art and design program. But uh, lucky for me, only one professor was available and had his office open and welcomed us in. And he ended up being an industrial design professor and pretty much printed out and gave me what industrial design meant. This is 1988. Nothing to Google and find, but to read this thing. And, you know, this is what I pursued after that. So how many of your family are in the United States at the time? Just you and your older brother? Or you and your younger brother? Yes, there would be three of us. And all at University of Kansas? No, I ended up transferring and my uh, my older brother obviously by then had graduated and my younger stayed at the, uh, at the other college that we were going to. Obviously, you kind of got in through a loophole if your dad thought you were studying engineering. But um, <laughs> <laughs> did you experience full support from your family even to make the shift from Ethiopia to the United States? Yeah, surprisingly, yes, because I think they also noticed one, I was happy 
doing that and I was actually excelling at what I was doing. Yeah. Okay. Those boxes are checked. Those, uh, those are the important are things. Yeah. Even <laughs> when, you know, art school is very expensive. So when I run out of money, um, you know, the support was there also. Full support, 100%. I'm happy to hear that. And tell me about your experience both in the United States, was there culture shock, but also in the industrial design program, did you feel like you'd found your thing? I did. I enjoyed my studio classes, even though it was a new experience. I did struggle with when it came to um, doing shop work, even though I did that apprenticeship uh, thing as a kid. One thing the shop owner made sure was we did not touch any powered machines. It was all hand-related. So transitioning to, you know, walking into a, a shop and doing model building was, was a challenge for me. Yes, I can come up with the ideas and I can sketch them. It was a struggle there. On the flip side, I was an extremely driven person. Had never used a computer, for example, when I came to the U.S., but picked up 3D and CAD and all those things pretty quickly. All self-taught during summer breaks on my own, my brother's computer. Yes, there were challenges, but I felt like nothing I could not overcome by if I had to stay up all night and doing it. Yes, you know, there were times I would stay until 3 a.m. or something in the morning in the studio and I'd be the only one there or one or two of us would be. Then it was, you know, walk all the way to our apartments, a couple of times being chased by a dog. So, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the challenges for me was part of the um, initiation, I guess, into the thing I wanted to do in the future. But on the flip side, I was the only black student also in, in the program until my senior year. So until I end of 93 was when I saw another industrial designer, I guess, in Studio One. So it, that was a huge gap. And this is something I continuously saw in my profession, either within the furniture world or the industrial design world, even up to now. Yeah, it's definitely an issue. I teach at a university and sometimes some of our Black students have very legitimate issues of not feeling supported and or like they have a community that they can resonate with. But also that sometimes the professors are a little bit too steeped in the Western canon and can't really effectively talk about work that isn't European in a way that gives them the same quality of feedback than, let's say, somebody who is working in a Western canon gets. Did you find something similar? Yes and no. So when it comes to the challenges I think I faced was I really poured in my time at the art library and spend my time there when I didn't feel like I found support or people didn't understand what I was working on. The liberation that I got was in the library, pouring through magazines. I, I had nowhere to go anyway between classes. I was not too much of a partying person or anything like that. So any spare moment was spent in the library through pouring through books. But those books also were limited when it came to Africa. On top of that, you can imagine all the uh, design magazines, be the industrial design one or the architectural ones or the interior ones. And our library were very uh, heavy on the Western way of design. It spoke back to me. And really, the reason I got into my thesis in my fifth year and I started working on what I coined back then, how to create modern line of African furniture, 
obviously from my own perspective and everybody would bring their own perspective. Africa is a huge continent with people in the billions in 54 countries and so on. So this is just my view, my vision, what I can put together from what I've learned as a designer, incorporating my culture or my African heritage into it. I saw an issue with the Canon even back then. There was certain way of defining what African design is when people got around to discuss it. This is an issue we even see now where major museums will do what you would consider a very large installations on African design, but it would be done maybe once every 10 years. And then it's a mad dash to get that going. Then we step away for the next 10, 15 years. We're not even consistently there. Our contribution is recognized maybe through cycles of things. It's like the Olympics, but every 10 years or so. I saw that in major publications because I was doing research. And when I'm doing research, you know, it's rarely I want to go through magazines. I want a serious book that covers different topics about African design. And I couldn't find them back then. I'm still having those challenges these days. It's much better. 30 years, you can imagine things have changed in the right direction. It's just that the speed of change still needs a big push. So you did your thesis on contemporary African furniture. And in doing that, well, I guess it's a two-part question. One, did you feel like it was received and supported? And two, did you feel like you found your your point of view and your voice and your way of expressing yourself through furniture in a way that felt authentic to you? Surprisingly, both my thesis one uh, professor and my advisor, uh, who I was lucky enough, uh, Janice Smith, uh, who still practices around the Philadelphia area, were excellent supporters. She obviously comes from a studio furniture background. The university didn't have anyone in, in that area until she got hired, the timing ended up being perfect for me. In my studio, my thesis one professor was the person who also introduced me to industrial design. So that mix went well. Thesis two was a challenge. KU back then, it didn't have the strongest program uh, from my view. And I didn't feel I got the support that was needed. But the jurors who were sitting at our presentation gave me uh, a very good uh, points for what I've achieved. So in a sense, maybe not everything went well, but, you know, looking back, it started my journey. That was the, the, the first pin I put down on this journey. So it started back in 92, you know, as thesis one, just doing research, then was into prototyping and making the models and doing the 3D stuff. And 3D back then was extremely difficult. It would take hours just to even render one <laughs> one chair <laughs> to find out something didn't work well. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking back, that decision is what got me where I am now in the things I produce and why I look back and makes me very happy with the decision. Because in, in thesis... We could have gone in any direction. I could have said, uh, I'm designing a heads-up display. But one of the reasons that made me go this route also was I was to myself saying, I want to do a two-semester work that I can take back home if I leave the U.S. and still continue. And if I had been heavily focused on you know, technology-related problem-solving for my thesis, it wasn't something I can take back home and produce. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. As you're graduating, what are you thinking about in terms of setting up a career for yourself and whether you would stay in the U.S. or go back home? I wasn't in the process trying to decide, do I want to go study my master's? Do I get internship? You know, I didn't have a a work permit, so I had to watch out that my visa wouldn't expire. (laughs) This is a challenge (laughs) for most foreign students. But in this back and forth and, you know, a couple of potential scholarships were offered and really not offered, and I lost on those. I was in a no man's land where my visa had expired, but Again, faith led me to to a lawyer because I was, we were trying to help another immigrant friend of ours who was in immigration prison. And the same lawyer out of nowhere asks me what I did and told him, well, I don't have a work permit. I would be in the same boat as our friend. Then he said, are you doing anything special? And I told him about my furniture. And he said, you know what? There is a such a thing called a national interest waiver. We should apply for it and um, why don't you read up on it and see if you think will work for you. We'll go ahead and do it. Just like the industrial design printout, this is another printout a lawyer gave me. And this is probably around 97. I said, this thing actually fits me. And around 98, I got my green card. 2000, I opened my first studio. I moved to Washington, D.C. and uh, opened my first studio as my best friend from childhood. Wow. Sounds like you've had a few happy accidents along the way. (laughs) Yes. But help me get to D.C. with your best friend from childhood. I'm happy to know that you have some brothers and some friends here in the United States. I always sort of worry about loneliness with the immigrant story. I have a lot of friends that graduated from high school with me in the U.S., even here in D.C. D.C. has the largest Ethiopian population, I think, outside of Ethiopia. No surprise, a decent amount of my schoolmates and classmates are out here. The transition to D.C. was, again, back to my thesis. Friends of mine who went to high school with me happened to be visiting us out in Kansas. And a few of them said, why don't we turn this into a business? And as up-and-coming immigrants trying to get into the professional world, we were just able to raise $20,000. And we said the largest population, number one, of Ethiopian immigrants is in D.C., so why don't we move there? Because we couldn't afford New York. Well, and to be a furniture designer in New York, too, has always confounded me, just with the sheer needs for space and, and transporting logs and things like that. <laughs> yeah. And we considered all that when we said, you know what, this people have never seen my work. We need to put a show together. This studio cannot be 100% focused on furniture. Again, this is 2000. There's no social media. There's no Instagram. 
It is who you know, you know, what that opens the doors. It's also worth acknowledging 2000 was a sort of a weird time for studio furniture, which yes, you could say that your work sort of falls into the studio category, but studio furniture was experiencing a bit of a decline at that time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. To accommodate all this change in the industry and to make sure we have a viable business with this $20,000 we raised, we said, let's have a graphics slash web design slash video editing. Any creative services that is digital, let's let's do that. And that will subsidize the furniture as we, you know, make connections and grow. Then we tried this maybe for eight years. The, the graphics part was going fine, but the furniture was just sucking a lot of investment. And it was not going anywhere. We were not getting traction locally. We were not getting traction anywhere. You know, you would send press releases, letters. Um, that's how it was done back then. We we couldn't get any anyone to print uh, any of our work to get the word out. I think in eight years, if I'm not mistaken, only three publications printed our work and none of them were local. Oh, that's disheartening. Yeah, it was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge where an interviewer from a major newspaper actually... <laughs> set up a meeting for us. To, she was going to come interview us, you know, me and my partner all dressed up in our suits and she just never showed up. Oh, that's heartbreaking, John. <laughs> <laughs> so things like this kept on happening where uh, none of them would pad out. We also had a, I remember a video interview in New York, Architectural Digest, but, you know, during recording, they had audio problems, so they never put it up. And it was never broadcasted. All that and us having very young families, both of us, in the exhaustion, the economy crashing in 2008, even though that year my work finally made it to a museum. I think it was the Chicago Science and Industry Museum had a show on black designers for Black History Month. And I was one of maybe 15 or so designers that was uh, being profiled. That was like the highest things we achieved in the, in 2008. And the lowest was both me and my partner saying, we, we got to step out. We got to step away from this. We're exhausted. We're burnt out. We work seven days and we're going absolutely nowhere. Both of us decided to go find a full-time job. I ended up at the World Bank Group where I was doing also consultancy work on the side, doing web design again and print design for them. So I got employment there in the data and statistics group. So I transitioned out of doing this full-time and making my furniture design work part-time in the evenings, weekends, whenever I had time. The only thing I really walked away from was I walked away from doing work in, in a shop for about seven years. Can I ask you like what your state of being was at the time? Were you in some ways kind of relieved to have a steady paycheck and not be killing yourself? Were you also a little heartbroken or did you sense that the world just wasn't ready for your work or? All of them. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah, I'm sure. It's a complex asked, cocktail of feelings. I, <laughs> yeah. I really felt deflated that. I thought I was doing something unique. Everybody in the industry kept on saying, if you're doing unique work, if you're doing uh, high craft, specialized work, that should open all the doors. And none of that was happening. I felt like 
our industry was a bit fake. I kept on saying, and sometimes up to this day, I, I keep saying, what else do I need to do to get this ball to the next court? Because it's extremely difficult. And I know everybody says it's all about talent. No, it's not. I really feel it's mostly about who you know and some talent. Yeah. And then sometimes I think it's also about trends and timing. And I understand that could play a role. My timing maybe was off. I've been saying that we've been missing from the design canon. The Global South has been missing. I was hoping to be that voice with other people. But again, social media not being robust at that time, there was no one to collaborate with. So, you know, I felt like, you know, Moses in the desert. I'm by myself. I feel like that you were too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you also mentioned you had a young family. So can you tell me like what was going on at home? You know, I had my first son in 2005 and one followed uh, 2007. So I have two sons. And again, you know, you worry about family and you worry about uh, healthcare and everything else. You as a single person, especially being an artist, you tend to be extreme risk takers, including financially, not only health wise. And those days could not continue for me. And I do have my my oldest son is a special needs son. So I really needed to be cautious about the steps I was taking, that whatever I was doing should be agreeable to the whole family and not myself. You sound like a great dad and a good guy, Jamal. (laughs) Thank you. But I have an amazing (laughs) wife who's been extremely supportive. Even when we started my business in 2000, we were dating. She's been fantastic throughout in Even now, when I stepped away from a very nice job uh, at the World Bank to pursue this again, she was one of the driving force behind the scenes saying, you should go for it. You have something special to to communicate to this world uh, through the pieces you're doing. So, Well, she's right. I'm glad you have somebody like that in your corner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same here. So you had a nice job at the World Bank. You were a data scientist Mm -hmm. there. Yes. And then you just mentioned take two. Uh, you, you got back into the furniture game yeah. almost 10 years later, right? So 2008 is when I got at World Bank and 2021 was when I left my day job from the World Bank. I took early retirement and walked away to pursue this full time because to be honest with you, I couldn't do both the jobs. I couldn't do the evening work of the furniture. And weekend, raise a family, and also keep a full-time day job. So it was time for me to leave. No, thank you. That's too much. Yes, no human it is. can do all that. Yeah, and it was an amazing job. And I was never a data or a numbers guy. You know, one reason I gravitated towards design was kind of, I think, uh, unconsciously walk away from that responsibility. But on the job, I learned a lot of things. I learned a lot of tools. I I, I saw how people did analysis. So I extracted all that knowledge and still use it for my own research. One of the things that put me on the map other than working through the Black Artists and Designers Guild was the research I did on Black designers who are licensed by furniture companies. Yes, I learned about that. I'm I'm excited you're going to tell us this story because I think it's really important what you did there. Oh, thanks. What I learned at my day job is important if you have data you can tell stories using data. So that's exactly what I did. You would see it in various design channels or outlets or mediums when 
black designers or designers of color say there are issues people would assume or comment that it's a frivolous thing it should always be about merit and so on and i said you know what one way to push back on this silly argument from my point of view is to actually present you the data. Yes. When I say I go to trade shows and I don't see anyone that looks like me, unless we're the security or the janitorial services or salespeople, and I mean it. It was because mm-hmm. I haven't witnessed this. I have gone to enough of these. And, but, you know, I said, I'll show you even the companies that all of us admire. And I admire these companies. I, I you know, I have their catalogs. I have them in books and everything. You know, like every designer, we appreciate everybody's work. It's just that we're missing. So one way to demonstrate that was to actually go and scrape all the data because, you know, lucky for me, major furniture manufacturers use their designers as a brandable way to market things and they list them. So that's all I did. I extracted that data and published it. Uh, And I just wanted to see Again, it's not a 100% accurate way of doing a survey, but, you know, no one was going to give me their internal data. So, you know, I had to use some kind of a guerrilla tactic to find out this stuff. And initially, it didn't get any traction, but because it was part of a presentation I did at Princeton uh, African-American program, and I sent it to a journalist. The journalist reached out to a few companies to comment on it. Nobody commented, so it couldn't get published. Uh, unfortunately, after the murder of George Floyd, in a few of these companies started publishing, you know, the black squares to be supportive. People started challenging them and the same journalists reached out. Now those same companies were commenting, saying we need to improve. And that's how the data story got out and it became a, a, a topic of discussion. And the data, just to sort of illustrate it for our listeners, is you scraped the websites of a lot of major furniture manufacturers for collaborations they were doing with designers. And you counted all of those up, and you also counted how many of them were with Black designers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as of 2020, you had counted up 4,417 collaborations, of which only 14 were with Black designers. probably it. I know... Different magazines might have interpreted that data differently, but at the end, it was 0.33% collaboration out of the 150 slightly plus. Now, I've not done the survey again. I know a few journalists reached out again saying if I've done it again, and my response has been, look, I don't have the resources you have. Why don't you do it? I just showed you how to do it as a single individual designer. I love that response. (laughs) Yeah. But I, what I think is so important about you doing that initially is we all knew there was a problem, but it, it hadn't been How bad? adequately named. It hadn't been adequately quantified. And also, we hadn't had it spelled out for us in terms of the numbers. But once it was spelled out in terms of the numbers and the different manufacturers, everyone can assume their own responsibility a little bit more easily. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it's almost like in psychology, when there's a weird feeling that you have, but you don't have a name for it, it's almost hard to own that feeling. Until it's been named, and you go, oh, this is the thing, other people understand it, you know, we can have language around this, we can talk about it. When you brought up the data like that in the numbers, it clarified for so many people, not just that there was a problem, which we all knew, but the depth of it, and also how simple 
it could be to make those numbers better, like one design collaboration at a time. We can just start ratcheting up that 14 to to much higher number. And yep. that's the easiest, most effective way to start solving this problem. I mean, obviously, it's endemic. And there's a lot of things that need to happen in terms of getting students into the design school pipeline. And so there's a lot of work that needs to happen there. But it's representation. If you can see yourself as a designer, then you can aspire to it. Then you can also make a case for it with your parents. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sure many uh, Black designers on Instagram, this happens to them just as it happens to me, where they receive an iMessage saying, I'm so glad to see an accomplished Black designer. This is what I used to say to others when I run into them when I was younger. Now, the role has reversed because now I'm in my 50s. Yes, I have some accomplishments under my belt. And younger designers are reaching out to me saying, you are an inspiration, number one. And number two, you are unabashedly promoting your own cultural heritage and your own heritage through your own design without putting down anybody else. Part of your goal is to also make sure that the canon of design, which which all of us keep saying is a global language, includes us. Yes. That feels good. For me, the payback is for all the pain and the 30 year journey. This part is the one that makes me say, it's okay. It's okay. It took this long. And in the <laughs> hopes that it takes the next generation, maybe five years or 10 years, but I still expect the younger generation to do the hard work, to contribute design wise in whatever shape or form they think is what they consider as contribution or is good design. The hard work part never changes. It's just that acceptance of this part. Yeah. And the path is a little clearer if somebody's been there. I didn't have that. So uh, in college and most of the young ones, all the way from, you know, I, 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 people reach out to me, you know, from Africa. And that makes my day personally, because I never thought that day would come. So it, it, it matters. You never thought that day would come, really. How did you stay doing this for 30 years without a kind of hope? I've always known from the moment I did my thesis, I said, this is it. This is what I want to pursue for the rest of my life. I've found the thing I want to leave behind as a legacy. And the goal has been, even as young as I was back then, was to change its industry. And I know a few people have said to me, why don't you stop saying Africa and African design and black design and just do design? But everybody else is doing that. And I said, we're missing and the goal is for me to fix it. And most of my friends thought it was an unattainable goal. For some weird reason though, I thought even when I was working at World Bank, my intention was when I turned 65 (laughs) and I retire, I am going back to this thing. I'm not letting it go. Lucky for me, things started picking up. And and again, I'll go back to uh, being part of the guild. The guild played a major, major role. So you're referring to the Black Artists and Designers Guild, founded by Melanie Barnett. Yes. But also co-founded by several others, including yourself in 2018. Yeah, and Melanie and every the other co-founders were struggling with similar things. Yes, they do all the hard work and the recognition wasn't there. The things we were doing were not being published or promoted. We're not being invited to events. And one event that year didn't invite any black designer when there were almost 100 of them invited either as moderator or panelists. And that's in New York. So that was the impetus to get 
the guild started and Melanie reached out. I only knew Melanie's work. I'd never met her before. And she tagged me and that relationship started. And the reason I jumped in into that was because of my own struggles. I went absolutely nowhere. And once this collaborative efforts and uh, focused work we started doing, putting shows together, pursuing editors to look into our work, asking to be on the table for recognition of our designers, things slowly started moving in the right direction at a much higher pace than it used to because I would get maybe before that one publication every six months. And I was like saying, okay, positive movement, but it didn't impact me enough to leave my day job. But after joining the guild and doing all this and participating in a few shows where important things happened, my career started changing. My, the recognition for my work came by. And, you know, in the year and something ago, the first museum acquisition happened. And the first museum acquisition came from the Met. The so Met? It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Metropolitan Museum of Art. No, that is quite something. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And to a point when, when I received the email from the Met inquiring about my work, my response was kind of, is this like personal purchase or this is for the museum? Because I couldn't believe the first museum that would want to buy my work would be the Met. Maybe a local small museum and then slowly grow. And I didn't have gallery representation. So I, I found the request stunning, but that opened doors into other museums looking into my work and getting to other major museums. Yes. Now you've been acquired by LACMA, the Smithsonian, Baltimore Museum of Art, Denver. Mint. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. So this, thank you. So this has been almost two years of amazing journey capping this year with the Black Panther Wakanda Forever using 12 of my pieces for their stage design. I know you can barely see them, but for me, it's just I can always aspire as an artist if you ask me, where do you want to be at the end of your career? I would have say, I, I would love to have my work in a museum, dead or alive. <laughs> but in a movie, no, that was not even, you know, on my radar screen. But still, if we're talking about changing the canon, like we have to look at Black Panther and Hannah Beekler's work as a production designer as an absolutely stunning and important and powerful representation of a kind of Afrofuturism that is opening hearts and minds and giving lots of people something to look forward to. Exactly. To be included in the overall scheme of furniture and objects and things that make up that world and be locked in that history now and part of that world. That's amazing. That's it's, super it's, exciting. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing to me and my family in general and every friend and colleague that has collaborated with me. So it's been a fantastic journey. Again, it makes you forget all the disappointing things that have happened uh, all the way to here. There's still a lot to do for me as a designer, but the work will continue. Hopefully more movies, more acquisitions, but most importantly, again, I go back to 
changing the canon. I don't want it to be a one-person journey. To this point, me and another designer, Norman Teague, another black designer, we started uh, building a database of black artists. So when museums and sometimes publications seem to focus only on few, we send them the list saying, you need to look into other artists and designers we know. And again, I'll admit that list is not complete, but we've reached to almost 80. We've been lucky enough that magazines reach out to us, museums reach out to us, and we are trying our best to make sure it does not become a single person's journey. You, we can't change the canon if we do that. We'll have a great career, I'll admit, but that's all it will be. Because the plan is to say, there is a body of work that is as diverse as possible, as you can imagine, from upcycled, recycled furniture, from handcrafted pieces that come from all the way from Africa to designers, industrial designers and other designers doing work that are licensed and artists that are creating one-of-a-kind pieces. All of them are contributing. It's not only Jomo or one other person or two. There's a whole body. And that is what at the end of the day, what the Guild is trying to say to the industry, there's a whole bunch of us. We need to be equally represented when you write your next book cataloging 200 years of furniture or some book title like that. This is where, where we aim to change it. And hopefully we're going to get there with support from the younger generation, but also people like me and even younger ones. We have to be cautious about only celebrating the here and now and the ones that are alive. We need to give credit to the older generation who never got into a museum or never got their work published, but they contributed. Yes. And I, and I also feel this way in many different cultures, the craft traditions that are really inherently included in design frequently get not acknowledged or somehow disavowed of as though craft isn't as important as it is. And this is the reason always interviews like this, they, they would ask me, who's the designer that influenced you the most? Believe me, I can name few. But I intentionally say the people who influenced me are the people who I've never met. The men and women who created the clay potteries when I was growing up or the um, uh, wooden stools and the different utensils and everything. They didn't brand. They didn't sign. They didn't do anything. But I'm basing my work on their contribution. So at minimum, I have to acknowledge that because without them, I don't have a career, to be honest with you. So it's not that I don't want to celebrate another well-known designer. I would love to, but they've been celebrated enough. I think the ones that have lost focus here are the ones that have done this with their own hands. So I, I prefer to pay homage to them and give my credit for who I am and where I am to them even though I don't specifically have one craftsperson working on a specific thing. But there's a beauty to your work that does feel kind of timeless. A, because it's so beautifully made, and you can tell the, the craft in the work is of the highest quality. B, there is a genuine, authentic synthesis of a real point of view that doesn't feel like a reductive Western take on what African is supposed to be. Yes. <laughs> and Glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a timelessness that comes from, I think, a mix of techniques that are 
some are probably as old as humanity and some are probably modern because, you know, you, you filter your point of view through a very contemporary lens. But the marriage of all of it comes together in a very, like, symphonic and beautiful way. And I think that's what gives a lot of your, your work such gravitas is that it not only does it feel so authentically you, but it feels timeless in its craft. I think the craft piece of it is very important. It's very important. And to be honest with you, Amy, I can't say it any better than what you just put it. (laughs) 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 Because that's, you know, again, that's the intention. Me marrying what I grew up with and that has influenced me with my industrial design background, even though I went to school to study fine arts and then changed to industrial design, it's a marriage of all these. And like I said, in our house, we had Norwegian furniture, we had Persian rugs and things from Indonesia, tables and lampshades. And, you know, it was an eclectic collection. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So it gave me appreciation while I didn't know the word, you know, design is a global language back then. It was sitting right in front of me. And I grew up with that. Me synthesizing all of these things into the new things that I'm creating, unconsciously, my designs tend to have clean lines, generally. And I love the result. It says, this is me. This is my signature pieces. Uh, This is how I interpret things. And another designer will go a, a different way. Maybe theirs is more organic or sculptural. So this difference is what I want the world to understand and capture we are very diverse as designers, as it should be, and which is true in even within the Western world. This should be acceptable for us. And not everything has to be animal print and masks. And this is the you know the Western <laughs> definition of what we Africans produce. But it should be diverse, including the animal prints and masks. <laughs> that's that's it. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I love your attitude. I can't see you, but I believe you have a twinkle in your eye. And I can hear it in your voice. I am curious how your life in data science crosses over into your design process now. I mean, I see it crossing over in terms of this database of other Black designers that you're keeping, in terms of the the piece you did where you tracked the data around Black designers. But other than like strictly data, how is it filtering into your furniture pieces? I mean, I don't specifically do, for example, ergonomics is all about data, but there's been a decent amount of studies there. I don't need to reinvent the, the wheel. For example, this latest chair I did, the Quanta chair, was based on an ergonomic drawing with all the scales added to it. And it's a lounge chair, what the dimension should be. So for me, initially, I used those dimensions to make uh, my new chair ergonomic. The thing I didn't incorporate into it was that my chair doesn't have an armrest. And I remember I got the mold done for, you know, the veneer bending and I propped it up and I sat on it and I couldn't get up oh. because I didn't have an armrest. <laughs> I had to stack every piece of sheet product I had around in my shop, stacked it up, angled it the best way, propped up the backrest. And I said, once I started getting up, I said, now I found it. Yes, yeah, specifically, this is not collecting ridiculous amount of data while I'm Googling. But is in a way, data collection on a chair that would not have an armrest. <laughs> you should be able to get <laughs> off it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if it, if it is already there, I'm not trying to reinvent things. Where I prefer to use my data is like doing analysis on our industry. Going back, human factors has been practiced or ergonomics has been practiced here for a while. And we've collected, at least when it comes to furniture, we've collected decent amount enough that I don't need to add anything to it other than just testing my own pieces to check if they're actually ergonomically correct. My goal in my design is for them to be functional, unique, sculptural, and artistic. Check, 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 check. You're winning on all of those accounts. (laughs) In that process, if I need to do additional research other than just testing it between me and, you know, my furniture builder is obviously taller and uh, larger than me. So, yeah, look, we, we tested between two of us. Then, of course, when it comes home, my wife tries it. So it's a small company and our test base is just as small. But if it can handle three of us, uh, you know, our approach for now is it can handle anyone. Most of the time, people buy especially my chairs to collect it as uh, as an art piece. And my understanding is Barely anybody uses it. They're displaying it as one-of-a-kind piece in their residence. But if you want to sit on it, it works just fine. Yes, yes. But I wouldn't let anybody come over and sit on that chair. (laughs) They're going to have some, like, a pen in their pocket or keys, and they're going to scratch it. And then I'm going to get mad at them. (laughs) Shifting gears a little bit, you've led such an interesting life. You've kind of had feet in both worlds of Africa and the United States feet in both worlds of data science and furniture design. Now you're experiencing a kind of tremendous success, which is fantastic. And I, I wish you more of it. I'm assuming you're doing a lot more interviews these days. And 
my question for you is, what is nobody asking you that you feel needs to be discussed? I don't have anything at the top of my head because even if they have not asked, I have injected those things. <laughs> Good for uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and, and like I said, the, the, the big picture for me has always been the issue of canon and, you know, rising tide lifting everybody. As long as I'm seeing that and I, I talk to that with the platform I've been given, including shows like yours or when I'm invited for panel discussions or to lecture or give presentation. Or soon you'll be featured on the Netflix TV series Made by Design. Uh, yes. And there is that. And one thing I can add is we, we're also shooting a film that will tell my story from my angle, edited with a team that I trust and hopefully will release that in, in a year or so. Oh, well, keep me posted. There's got to be a way to visually tell my story. We'll have that uh, hopefully soon. That's an interesting project. I want to keep tabs on that. Please yeah, keep me posted. We, we did a shoot in, at Design Miami. Uh, Wexler Gallery is representing me beginning this year. Uh, we started the relationship about five months ago and it's been going well, but we wanted to capture that journey. Going first time uh, showing at Design Miami, obviously the film and so on. But there is a story like we just discussed that predates that. And hasn't been easy. So we want to document that. And this is what I also try to encourage other black designers or any other designers. Make sure it's not only about portfolio. If your life is a journey to accomplish something, you have to figure out how to document it, how to present it. Because at the end of the day, we're going to pass. And what is going to be left is our work. And if you've not been able to tell your story from your angle, well, somebody's going to tell it. Here, here, and I'm so happy to hear you taking this on. And one of the things that I champion as a podcast host, but also as a professor, is this idea of owning your own narrative. Mm. You have to be able to tell your story, and that, and you have to believe that the telling of that story is actually nutritious for all the people around you who will consume it. It will change their filter on life to be able to digest your story in important ways. You can't really have control over how everybody receives your story, but you can have control over how your story is told. Exactly. I agree. Well, this has been delightful. I guess my last question for you is, you seem to be on an exciting trajectory and you've worked really hard to get here. So congratulations. What... And where are you hoping to expand? Obviously in changing the canon, but if you want something for your personal self, like a fancy vacation, that's acceptable too. <laughs> well, I always want a fancy vacation. <laughs> my family <laughs> Who doesn't. My family wants a fancy vacation. <laughs> they haven't gotten that out of me. So I, I only have one big hurdle that I'm struggling with right now is by the mere fact I live in one of the most expensive places to live, Washington, D.C., or the outskirts of that, is not been able to expand and open up my own fabrication facility. I, I want to have more control over things I make. I want to be able to come up with new ideas and whip it out quickly and not wait too long for to plan and all that uh, to do new things. Right now, I'm pretty limited with where I am. You know, I'm speaking to you from my basement right now, and I want out. I want to have a real shop 
um, have few other young and up and coming designers working with me and learning something from me so they can leave there and hopefully do their own thing, but also control my destiny uh, a little bit more. Um, that's the goal for the next, hopefully, five to 10 years. That's a beautiful goal. I hope you achieve it. And I hope you achieve it in two to three years. <laughs> Thank you. I need that. <laughs> Who <laughs> likes to wait? I don't like waiting. <laughs> Listen, Jomo, it has been delightful not only speaking to you, but digging into your story and learning about, you know, your life and, and what you've done and your perspective on the world. And I just really appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Amy, for giving me the platform to talk about uh, myself, my work, and obviously the Guild, which is very important to me, and uh, everything else in between. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Jomo, including images of his work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can tag us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.